0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. But I am uh, very excited about today and also biting on way more than I can chew. We're going to eat the whole pie today. I don't know if we're going to make it or not. Um, uh, um, moving through Romans, um, coming to, uh, if, if, if you have any familiarity with Romans, you can kind of trip off the tongue and say Romans 9 through 11 and be like, wow, um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's hard. I was reading some parts of, uh, this was John Barclay, uh, one of the people I'm reading, following along in this class, um, and he called the secondary literature on this part of Romans as unmanageably immense, and I took a lot of comfort in that, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, good, sir. I mean, this is a guy who spent, you know, he's probably 40, 45 years into his career. He's really just one of the great New Testament sort of Pauline people around. Um, And if he thinks the the literature is unmanageably immense, then for somebody like me, I I take a little bit of comfort in that. Hey, Drew. Um, uh, So with that, um, we're going to try to take our best shot at going through 9 through 11, because I think it's best done together. Remember, we didn't take the Bible and break it up into chapters until the Reformation. And so it was just Romans. And we didn't put um, verses on those until about 70 or 80 years after that. So it was like late... Um, 16th century, early 17th century, I can't remember exactly when, um, when we started to have the first study Bibles that were around. Um, the Puritans did that for us. And they broke it down into something like Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Before that, you would look at sections. They would certainly know that. But this is just a big section that really moves through um, and describes. And here's the here's the punchline. Here's where we're trying to go to. I really am excited, and we really do have a lot to do. Um, uh, God's Word, Romans 9.6, I'll go ahead and just kind of give the punchline. Um, his thesis here, 9.6, is it is not as though God's Word has failed. I know we haven't prayed yet, this is all just the intro. Um, God's Word has not failed. The way it has worked in the past, its shape, its character, its living and activeness, its effect, how it does what it's doing, um, is the same as it was then, It's what it's doing now, at the time that Paul wrote it, which is also, we could say, in the now time of us. Remember, we're talking about, you know, if judgment's behind us and we're moving towards this, remember the circles? So we're still in the same time as Paul, even though it's 2,000 years later. But these are the last days, this overlap of the ages. The way God's word worked in the past is the way it works now, and it's the way it's going to work then, in the future, at the end of history. Um... That's going to be Paul's thesis, and we're going to look at that and see um, especially how he wants to ask the question, um, well, what about Israel? Um, he's an Israelite. He's a Jew. Um, he's of the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, um, uh, ethnic Israel. Um, that's his bloodline. Um, weren't they the people of the promise? Are we plan B now? Because if Paul's plan B, if the Jews are plan B, what about us? We could say, oh, now we're the chosen people. But if the chosen people once failed, and God sort of reset, did the etch-a-sketch thing, and said, let's start over, what about us? We think we've got it, but he could change his mind again. It is not as though God's word has failed. How he's worked in the past is what he's doing now is what he will do at the end of time. So with that, um, so excited, I pulled this one out. Um, Blessed Lord, let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may, in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, Who are you? because um, we're looking at Romans. We're going to take a pause during Lent. This room is about to be turned over tomorrow to get ready for Lenten lunches and all. Um, uh, but it, we'll come back to this. We'll, fin- we'll go ahead and finish Romans. Um, uh, Romans 12 through 16 um, after Easter. Uh, but up to this point, Paul's been unfolding um, his, uh, his, his word at the very beginning, Romans 1.16, um, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And then he wants to continue in Romans 3, and I'm not going to hurry, and say something like, but but now another righteousness has been revealed. um, A different way. Not a righteousness according to the law, but now a righteousness according to faith. And this which has been hidden is now a mystery that has been made known. Um, And now this, with judgment behind us, as we move forward, free people... People who are called because Romans 3 and 4 are centrally involved in Romans 9 through 11. Um, most of the classes I teach are, gen- you know, I try to keep them standalone so you can come to all of them or you can hit one. I mean, this is a book that really builds on itself more than almost any other. Um, Romans 3 and 4, but now another righteousness has been revealed. A righteousness from faith to faith, from first to last, where faith was what brings us in and faith is going to bring us all the way to the end, at the end of history, um, Romans 1.17, uh, where God raises the dead and calls into existence things which did not exist. Romans 4.17. That's probably the verse, I knew that one, that one was in a buried verse, it's a well-known verse, but boy, That one has lifted up and just made itself in all capital letters to me in these last several months. Um, Romans 4.17, worth coming back. God who raises the the dead and calls into existence the things which did not exist. That sense of calling is going to be such a central idea, um, especially here where it's not just naming like, and, and the Lord brought all the animals to Adam, and whatever He called them, that's what their name was. That's one way we can use the word call. To name something is to call something. It's not just a summons. Like, I call you forth. Drew, come here. I'm calling you. It's not that. It's not a naming and a summons. It's that, and calls into existence the things which did not exist. He calls those who once were not a people, a people. Those who were not loved. And they're now loved. This calling, this creative word of God, going all the way back, where the word of God, a living and active and creative word, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's going to be central. And he's going to use in the word calling. Um, calls into existence things which did not exist. You and I are contrary and disobedient people. Israel... He notes at the end of chapter 10, is a contrary and disobedient people. When we are contrary and disobedient, we are squarely in the crosshairs of God's mercy. So that's where we're headed. Um, So who are you? The answer comes from the gospel. Um, You are the one to whom it is spoken. Uh, I am the Lord your God. You belong to me. You are mine. You are my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased. And our whole central, one of the ways we've been working through this, with this creative call of God, uh, is that when He does that and brings into existence the things which did not previously exist, when He speaks that word, the thing that wasn't there is now there. And you are the person who hears. And you weren't, and now you are. And that is what we're calling faith trying to break it down in real simple terminology. What is faith? It's not this faith is sort of the blind leap, like Indiana Jones stepping out in faith or something else like that. Faith is being loved by God. Faith, from first to last, because the righteous shall live by faith. It's not the righteous shall live in some sort of blind hope that God's going to take care of things. No, it's grounded in history, and we're going to look at that. It's not as though God's Word has failed past, present, and it will be in the future. Faith is being loved by God. All right, I've got to hurry. Um, but this is all in here, and we're gonna, this is, helps do it now. We can unpack it then. Um, so one of the catechisms that came out, um, Westminster Catechism, a lot of us will know the answer to this. What is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? Remember, who are you? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's right, Westminster Short Chasm doesn't say what that means. What does it mean? How does one glorify God? To glorify God is to be loved by Him. To glorify God, to magnify Him, to say whatever God is, let's put His Godness, as it were, on full display so that there is no mistake. Um, How does one glorify God? By being recipients of His grace. Who are recipients of God's grace and mercy? The contrary and disobedient people all throughout history. So to glorify... you know, What's the chief end? What's, what, why are we here? What's our chief end? Um, to glorify God. What's, why are we here? Who are you? What, what's our chief end? To be loved by God. Those two things are the same thing. To glorify God is to be loved by God. Because as Ashley Null will remind us when he comes around, God's glory... His godness, as it were, magnified and in clear, unmistakable, all capital letters. God's glory is to love the unworthy. God is going to say, my glory is to take an obstinate and contrary people and love them. My glory is to take something so unfitting and to say, I'm going to pour my grace into that. I'm going to give my gift into that. And that's what we were for like all of 4 in chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6. And so just taking God's godness, as it were, and saying, because it's not as though God's word has failed, you can hear me trying trying all this together, uh, is to take an obstinate and contrary person, Um, like the litany in Romans 3, all have sinned, our throats are open graved, none are righteous, no, not one, to take those people, those vessels, that are, are worthy of wrath. He's going to use that language in chapter 10. And to take those vessels and to pour His precious blood, His Son, His grace, His mercy, into those vessels and make them vessels of honor, make them vessels of mercy, make them vessels of His love and His compassion. So, that's where he's going. Um, two things. Um as we think about... No, I've already done that. Let's go on. Um, God is God. Therefore, God is free. If God is free, God can do what He wants to do. You may not like it, but God is God. Therefore, God is free. We may not like it, but He gets to do what He wants to do. That's Job. Um, if you remember Job... All the afflictions that came on him and everything um, at the towards the end of the book in Job thirty eight, um, God finally speaks and it's something like that God that says, we're, okay, are you done speaking, Job? You know, where were you when I poured the foundations of the earth? Where were you when the Leviathan was born? Um, where were you when the mountain goat hidden on top of Mount Zion came into being? Where were you when I when I, when the winds were created?" And he goes through and. It's like, you know, having a hard time. Come on, God help me here. I'm Job. You remember? You know. Um, but God, He wants to say, like, Job, I'm God. I'm free. I get to do what I want to do. We may not like that answer, but Paul is going to emphasize that in Romans 9. I'm giving you the punchlines before I start. Because it's going to feel like, especially when we get to, I think it's 918, a jarring word. Uh, which Paul quotes directly out of Malachi, he quotes the Old Testament all over the place. I'm not going to point out all this. I mean, about half, that's not quite true, probably 20% of these three chapters are quotations from the Old Testament. It's kind of cool what he does. He just creates these supertext. Like, he's not really Googling and, and cut and pasting and making sure he's really, really close. You know, He's just taking a text and another one and another one and mashing them together, and it's like the supertext. Of course, Paul can do that. You know, he, He's writing the inspired Word of God underneath the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But he's taking all, just, he's so seeped in the Old Testament. He's pulling all this together. And so we should feel the weight in 9.18. He says, you know, this obstinate contrary people, I get to do what I want to do. I'm God. You're not. You're going to have to get over that? Because Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We should squirm when we hear that. Because it's like, whoa, (laughs) wait. I thought, I thought Jesus might have something to say about that, and, and he will, but right there God's saying, like, I'm God. I'm free, so I get to do what I want to do. Um, I will get to have mercy on those who want to have mercy, and I will have wrath on those who want to have wrath. So if God is free and he gets to do what he wants to do, have this mind as we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest Romans 9-11. through 11. What is the thing that God is doing when he is most doing the thing he most wants to do? Because God will say things like, um, it is mine to avenge. Um, Esau I hate. Um, uh, I will smite the Amalekites. Is that what God is most wanting to do? It's certainly what he's doing. But what is God doing when he's most doing the thing he most wants to do? And there, friends, we run to Jesus. We run to God as He preached Himself in flesh and bone, as the Word became flesh. This living sermon, Christ Jesus given for you, and He shapes that answer. When we ask the question, what is God most doing when He's most doing the thing He wants to most do? I know that's an odd thing to say, because God wants to do a lot of things, but what does He most want to do? He most wants to have mercy. And grace, so he can be glorified in his godness. And in all capital letters, we won't miss who he is. God has mercy on disobedient and contrary people. He takes dumb sheep with black hearts and he says, I love you. And those sheep become clean with new hearts and they follow the pastor. So, with that, let's read. Um, Going back to uh, the end of Romans eight, um, which I have there on the top, we're going to skip just real briefly. Um, we remember this. We hang on to these words, um, for I am certain, or I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And flip over to the last page. <coughs> one would think, if I were writing, I would want to write something like what he wrote in chapter 11, verse 33, a doxology, one of his best. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift, uh, who has given a gift to him that might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. That's what you think there would be. But what does Paul do right after somebody else called the Himalayas of the New Testament at the soaring height where we know that nothing and no thing, what's Sally Lloyd-Jones' phrase? Some of you all have the Jesus Story Bible in your bedside. Um, that never giving up, always and forever love, I mean, it's a beautiful phrase. That, that, that's a great, great Bible. I know we, we hand it out to our, um, our parents and we should. Uh, from there, Paul goes to the beginning of chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He goes from the highest height, and the, the, the words there are even stronger in Greek. You know, I'm not going to Greek out. Um, great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself, Moses did this once, I wish that I could myself be accursed and cut off for Christ from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for my kinsmen, According to the flesh, we're going to skip around some. Um, Paul goes from the highest height to the lowest depth. Why? Because of his people. He's a Jew, he's an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he gives his dossier, his CV somewhere else. He is fastidious in how he can prove himself. Um, and now he's been shown this new righteousness, the righteousness not from works, but by Christ and his righteousness. Um, But as people, what about them? Are they not people of the promise? Are they not uh, the the people of the covenant, the ones to whom the law was given, who worship and the promises? To them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh. is the Christ, who is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. And Paul enters his thesis. It is not as though the word of God has failed. You can obviously hear me. That's probably the sixth time I've said it. That's central. He wants to ask, how did the word work in the past? And the next part of chapter 9 is going to go here. For not all, that's going to be an important word, because at the end um, it's going to say, for God has consigned all to disobedience, so that you may have mercy on all. Um, so that same sense of all comes right here at, at, at the second half of 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. And now Paul, I don't want to, you, know, you too has an album, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Um, Bono was writing it when his dad was dying. And his answer is love. The atomic bomb, the thing that faces us, that's going to destroy us all, death. That was Bono's way of saying it. Paul has a way. He's like, we have all these ways we want to dismantle the atomic bomb. Sin and death. You know, the two great enemies. And we can use our genealogy, our bloodline, our geography. I'm a Texan. It's just really hard for a Texan to say. My Texanness, my fifth-generation Texasness, is not going to save me. Um, yours isn't either. Wherever you're coming from, whoever your people are, it's not enough. It's not your works, your morality, your... Um, how else does he do it? Uh, and not the social customs. Why? Because he takes Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and Moses and Pharaoh, and he has all these dichotomies and he contrasts, and he says, none of these things matter before God. Because God gets to have, in a symmetrical way, if he's free and he gets to be God, have mercy on who he wants to have mercy and have wrath on who he wants to have wrath. Here's how he does it. Um, Though Isaac, uh, through Isaac shall be your offspring um, named, that is not as the children of the flesh, because Ishmael was also a child of Abraham, a child of Abraham's flesh. And he didn't get it. And so that, that's not enough. Just to come out of Abraham's seed didn't do anything for Ishmael. Um, my texan doesn't do anything for me because it's not enough. Um, who are the children of God? But the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah conceived children by one man, so Rebekah and Isaac had twins, so by the same sexual act, Jacob and Esau were born. And it's, no, it's not like, you know, One was preferred because that was a Tuesday, and the other, three years later, was born on a Thursday or something. No, it's the same sexual act, the same time. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, again, family, bloodline, genealogy, um, and he emphasizes even further they were not yet born, and so they had done nothing good or bad. So, even their morality, you know, that's brought into play. It's not, he's a good man. You know, eulogies are fine, I get it, you know, but that's not enough. You know, he did this, he did this, he was a member here, he didn't do this, he didn't do this. Goes through, how to dismantle, and he's just throwing all these things in the moody fire, and it's just burning and having smoke. Thank you for laughing. Um, uh, Throwing them all in the fire in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of the one who calls. The one who foreknew chooses, the one who chooses calls, the one who calls justifies, the one who justifies glorifies. Calls and brings into existence the things which previously did not exist. Calls and makes people who once were not a people, people. And makes those who were not loved, loved. Um, for she was told uh, uh, that the older um, uh Esau will serve the younger, Jacob. So even social customs, the way things have always been done, not enough. This massive fire, everything destroyed. For as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul does it several times. He's hoping he's like, your mind is racing. So what shall we say then? Well, I have a lot to say. Um, Is there injustice on God's part? Um, Don't have time. Uh, By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is God's godness. He's free. Um, And I will have compassion on those who have compassion. So it depends not on human will exertion, but on God, who has mercy. So I'm going to go quick, as if you didn't know that. Um, There are no becauses. Why did God choose me? Because there's no because. Or maybe the only because, God. Because God has mercy. And right now, it feels very symmetrical. Some of us, He has mercy. And others, he doesn't. And it just lands, and there's this division, and this is like the elect and the rest, and that's going to be a big part, and it's just this wall. And we're just hoping (coughs) that we're over here, and not over here, because it seems very symmetrical at this point. Um, He has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You feel the tension at this point? But you can hear me. That's why I wanted to give you the punchline in case I didn't get there. That's not the way that God's word has worked in the past, or is working in the present. And it's not the way it's going to work in the future. And so he continues. Um, Let's go to 22. So he says all that, has the example from the potter. Shall a piece of clay say to the potter, why did you make me into a vase? I wanted to be an ashtray. (laughs) It says no piece of clay ever. Um, He asks in verse 22, what if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power. So that's these people over here. Remember the division of the rest? Those poor people over there? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience? much patience? And if you're a careful listener, you remember that from chapter 2. Uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known... That's a key phrase. In order to make known... The riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy. So now that neat symmetry, well, it just comes down this way. God can do what He wants to do because God is free, and some He has wrath, and some He has mercy, some He has compassion, some He, uh, uh, some He doesn't. And there's a neat there's a there's a line that's not what this says. He says He has wrath in order to have mercy. There's a directionality to what God is doing. So when I ask the question, very awkwardly constructed, I know, what is God most doing when he most wants to do the thing he most wants to do? Directionality. God may be bringing down, killing, consigning to disobedience for a purpose to have mercy. God is going in a direction. That's going to be key, because God's word in the past is the way it works now, and it's going to be Israel's hope in the future. So he continues, so in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, there's that word again, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, and this is a massive shift. Massive shift, and first Peter does this too. The prophet was speaking about Israel, and now Paul is taking it to the Gentiles. A Gentile, just anybody that's not a Jew. So they had that dividing wall, the Jews do. There's the Jews, and there's everybody else. You can call them Greeks, Gentiles, the world, whatever else. And that's all us. And Paul is now shifting that around to say that what the prophet Hosea once said for the Jewish race, he's now speaking to us. And again, this call, 417, calls into existence the things which did not exist. For those who are not my people, I will call My people. Uh, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Um, so, shifting down to verse 30, he goes to um, a sports cast like Chris Fowler now, um, and he starts calling this race. Um, in in nine thirty, he goes to, through, through the first part of 10. Um, that he's got the Jews and the Gentiles in mind with a strong separation, with a sense of the rest. Uh, And he wants to now say, there's a race going on, and the Gentiles never even knew it, and they won. (laughs) They they didn't even know there was a race. They didn't know they were running. They are just lollygagging around, and all of a sudden comes up and puts the the medal around their neck and all that. And the Jews are going like, what? It's two parts. We have to go get the law and then take the law and run to the finish line. And Paul wants to say, that's not it at all. That's what you should hear. That's what I want us to hear as we're reading these words. The Jews won. I mean, the Jews were running a race and never even got to the law, like to to the end of part one, much less the end, because they stumbled. And he pulls in all of Isaiah and and, uh, and, uh, and and Peter does this as well. They stumbled over the chief the the the, the stumbling stone over the scandal on um, Jesus himself. They stumbled. And they fell; they didn't win. And the Gentiles didn't even know there was there was a game going on. I mean, it's really ridiculous. But this is what Paul says. He's like, and they won. So, 9:30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness; have attained it. That is the righteousness. Sorry, that's not a question. That's a statement. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's 3:23. But that Israel, who has pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed by reaching the law. There's a faint echo here. Remember the game of Clue? The law, which is good and right and holy, was seized by sin. And so the butler took the candlestick in the parlor. And so sin took the law, which is good, and then killed in the parlor. That's in our flesh, in our bodies, in our members. Similar to that... um, uh, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not even succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And works. That's not so much... It is, but it's not. Um, this isn't works righteousness in the sense that we sometimes think. I mean, most Jews weren't thinking and aren't thinking now, if I do this, this, and this, God will be happy with me and I get in. I have to make sure I have enough of that house. It's just simply... Observing the Torah, being a religious people, you know, observing the Sabbath, not killing like we heard today, um, uh, participating in the holidays, um, the Jewish holidays, remembering and having Seder suppers, and doing that. That's, That's the works that he means. And it's not even that. Um, they have stumbled over a stumbling stone. For as it is written, and he kicks Isaiah, 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 three different places, and also Joel, again with these super texts. Um, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He goes on, the Jews who were running the race never even made it to part one. And the Gentiles didn't even know there was a race. They have been uh, rewarded and are now brought in. Um keeping that, that, that race metaphor going, um, verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish her own, they, Israel, did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That end of the law, I think we hear it in almost every way you can think of it. Um, the law no more has jurisdiction over us because we're dead. That's what he says absolutely in Romans 6 in all capital letters. But here... It's the it's, it's, it means Mercedes Marathon, right? It's the finish line. That's both the end of the marathon, and so now you've run 26.2 miles, you don't need to run anymore. You don't go point .3, you don't go point .4. It's the end, it's the terminus, but it's also the completion. That thing that you've been working for has now been fulfilled. And so it's got both ways that we hear that word end. Um, a completion as well as a terminus. Christ is the completion and the terminus of the law. And now that Christ has come, the law is at its end. For the, It is a uh, for everyone who believes. So we ask that question, well, how do we believe? We'll get to that. We have been there, but we'll go there again. But let's land the plane. Um, going fast, just taking five. This is that part a lot of us will know. Um, how will they preach if there's no one um, how will they hear if there's no one to preach and how will somebody be preached how will they be preaching if no one is sent the basis for missionary work for, for teaching, for preaching just for living life is all right here uh, wants to say this the word is very near you it is in your mouth and it is in your heart and this phrase which a lot of us know which is probably around at the time something like in a liturgy um, like a baptism liturgy For if you believe with your mouth and uh, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. That's not the if-den condition because the whole point here is Jesus is already there. He's in your mouth. He's in your heart. And so speaking, Jesus is Lord and believing from the heart that Jesus has died for my sins, that I've been saved. It's just right there. It's for, now the indicative, Jesus is already there. It's happened. And that's what's going on here when this great part where it comes down to um, uh, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, hearing, which needs a speaker, speaker, which needs a word placed in the mouth, it's already there because the Gentiles who have been, didn't even know there was a race um, have had all this placed in them, placed in their mouth and in their heart. Uh, so it's already here. So, all right. We're going to make it... um, We turn to chapter 11. Um, He still has lots of questions. He knows there's lots of questions that come up. I ask then, has God rejected His people? He's about to get to the future. About to get to the end of time. Not quite there. By no means. He hasn't rejected Israel. He has two examples. I'm a Jew, says Paul, and he didn't reject me. He showed himself to me. I was on Damascus. He came down. He showed himself to me. The living God. Had an encounter, so it's definitely not all of Israel has been consigned to disobedience. Because I'm here, and he also then quotes in the time of um, Elijah when uh, when the Lord reserved seven thousand um, who did not bow the knee, the remnant that didn't bow the knee to Baal. Um, he says, and that happened then. So now God's word has not failed. Then, now will be uh, all this is still happened. Um, So verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what he was seeking. Going back to the race metaphor. But the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. But now we remember that God has a direction. So the rest were hardened, but when God is doing what he most does, he softens things. Um, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. But, is the trailing word there. So I ask, in verse 11, he starts to move to the future, Did they, i.e., the rest, the rest of the Jews, not not him and the others, the remnant, stumble and or they may not fall, uh that they may not fall. So it's like, I, I get knocked down, but I didn't get up this time. Like they've stumbled, and now they're never gonna get up, and they're just they're going to hell. It's done. They're a lost people. He once promised them mercy and grace, and God he he his his promises are he he wavered. He said, No, I changed my mind. No. Paul wants to say, no, that's not what happened. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Verse 13. Inasmuch as as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Life from the dead. So he brings this in. um, Brings it back. Paul can't. That's another thing I'm noticing. He can't get away from... Jesus raises the dead. That's what he wants to say over and over and over again. And so he gets this just strange metaphor that Jesus is the root, and out of that was growing branches, and Israel were the natural branches, but God has come and cut them off, and so they've been thrown away, and he took unnatural branches, that's us, the Gentiles, and he grafted them in, and and now it works. And I don't grow trees, newsflash, but that doesn't work. And Paul wants to say, I know it doesn't work, but God raises the dead. If he can raise the dead, he can stick a branch on a trunk of a tree and it's going to work. That's, what he went, that's what's happened. And he gives us a warning. Don't be proud. Just because you were a branch that was not on the tree and now you are, don't be proud. So you can read Mark, learn it, and we'll address that. But we come here to verse 25. I know we're pressed right up. We're going to make it. Verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, so humility, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Mystery isn't like a Rubik's Cube that I'll never figure out. It's, um, we didn't see it before, but now it's been made known. This mystery has now been revealed, so it's a revelation. Um, uh, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, there's the direction, the fullness of Gentiles has come in. So Paul's not going to say exactly how, because He doesn't give us a rationale or an explanation. Remember, God is free. He can do what He wants. There's no because. He just says the way God's worked has worked in the past, and the way He works in the present. He's going all in. He's a, he, God keeps His promises. He promised His people that He will not leave them or forsake them. I don't know how it's going to work, but a hardening, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And how it's going to come, I don't know. But when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, This way, all Israel, that's in the words, the dividing line, whatever this, it's not necessarily the numerical all, because again, it's not people of flesh, it's people whom God calls. All Israel will be saved. Um, Lost my place. In this way, all Israel will be saved. For as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and I will take away their sins. Um, In verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Not beloved because they are the ethnic sons, the bloodline of Abraham. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, who were the recipients of the gifts and the calling of God, which are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also will receive mercy." Paul just wants to say, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I trust God. God is free; He can do what He wants, and He wants to do what He most wants to do in a direction. He hardens so that He may have mercy. He has wrath so that He may have mercy. For God has consigned all. That's there is no difference. There is no distinction, neither Jew nor Greek, male, female. Uh, kind of borrowing a phrase. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? Because there's only one person, one type of person that God has mercy on, and that's to a disobedient and a contrary people. He has re- eliminated the dividing line and made a denominator of one. There's only one kind of person, and that's a disobedient and contrary person. No longer Jew or Gentile. And God has consigned all to disobedience so they may have mercy on all. And now, at the end of the world, at the end of time, he sings a song. And we'll make this into our prayer. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has been given a gift to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.